This is Game Designed Unboxed, inspiration to publication on the No Direction Network. Danielle, Denise, and Ben interview tabletop designers on the games they've made. Together, they unbox how a game went from inspiration to publication. Thank you for joining me, Ben, Danielle, and Denise for Game Design Unboxed, inspiration to publication, episode 13, Lots. Today, we are joined by Zach Connolly, designer of Lots by Royal End Games, Bumbling Ferrets by Bicycle Games, and creator of Main Event, A Card Game Battle Royale, and Deathbot Derby. Not to mention, a judge of the illustrious Cardboard Edison Award. Thank you for setting aside some time today to sit down with us, Zach. Oh, thanks for having me. It is my pleasure, and I hope I'm not speaking for Danielle and Denise, but we are very happy to have you. I'm happy to be here, guys. Oh, yeah, super happy. So to jump right on into it for our listeners, our dear, dear listeners, I'd just like to ask, uh, well, before even that, here we go, thought it was appropriate to have you on the 13th episode because there are no 13th <laughs> floors in any buildings. Uh, would you be able to talk a little bit uh, about yourself, actually, and how you fell into board game design and the hobby as a whole? I see. I thought you were going to ask why there are no 13th floors, but that's actually a real thing. <laughs> that's that actually, that's an old superstition. No uh, way. They, yeah. 13 is my favorite number. Oh, that makes yeah. me sad. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so uh, board games, not floors. Uh, I actually got into board games, uh, incidentally, because of DVD night. Uh, believe it or not, my wife and I would go to Target. And we would buy a new DVD every week and just watch a new movie. Obviously, this was before uh, Netflix was just streaming things directly to us. And we couldn't find anything worth buying one night. So while in Target, we actually wandered into the board game section. And I hope no one judges me for this, but we picked up the game called Munchkin. And we took it home. We played it. We just had a ton of fun with it. We started playing with with friends and that's kind of what got the ball rolling i mean obviously we all uh had family game nights as kids you know playing things like monopoly and you know uno and all the classics but that was my first introduction into uh modern hobby gaming i was gonna say why would anyone judge you on munchkin good oh, god i mean people they have an judge munchkin all off. the time yeah i guess i mean they do the rebranding of the exact same game but it works for them oh my god i should oh, know I, because i help print those <laughs> and and whereas there are people who kind of look down on take that as a mechanism honestly it was it was that interaction that drew me into uh board gaming uh obviously i've moved on to uh more complex things but something about sitting at the table and actually being part of the activity with other people really just got me excited to play more that's it right there and then you know like like anyone, eventually you say, hey, we could make a game. Oh, Honestly. how little uh, did we know? <laughs> <laughs> and for anyone who hasn't played lots, that is what we're talking about here. How do you play it? Like, you want to give a general overview of the game? Absolutely. Lots is a, I describe it as a three-dimensional spatial puzzle using tetromino blocks, uh, which is a really fancy way of saying 3D Tetris. Uh you take blocks and you stack them. You're trying to complete floors and match colors. Now, uh, unfortunately, we couldn't figure out for a way for the floors to disappear. So you just score them as they fill in. 
but uh, it is a tower building game. And uh, it, it's, how do I say? I, I wanted to, again, focus on things like the interaction. So there are cards that allow you to, you know, cheat, break some of the placement rules throughout the game. Because those are always just little fun fun additions to the game, little aha moments. I'm not going to lie. Were you a fan of Tetris when you designed this? Or did it just happen? Like, are you a fan of the polyomino games? I, I am. Oh, I love Tetris. Uh, my wife is infinitely better at it, but uh, I, we we love playing it. And, you know, there's just always something uh, fun about the spatial element of things and seeing how they fit together. I completely agree. I feel like for the longest time, that used to be one of my favorites. Like that game Blockus when I was little was my jam and Cathedral, all those guys. I'm curious, what did playtesting look like for the game? Uh, what kind of prototype were you, uh, how did you build a prototype um, and how did folks interact with it? The Well, the very first stages of uh, playtesting, uh, I actually purchased wooden blocks off of Amazon and glued them together myself in the different shapes, you know, the, the L, the square, the line, all the classic things from Tetris. And, uh, and then I spray painted them myself. And like any good game, I didn't really show it to anyone other than friends and family uh, at first. Kind of got a feel for where I wanted it to go and you know how complex I wanted the game to be. And it wasn't until maybe, uh, maybe about two years later did I have the blocks 3D printed just so that they were a little more presentable, where I started you know, sending it out to people for blind testing. I started taking it to conventions and things like that. So, yeah, in the beginning, it was just wooden blocks and glue. What kind of conventions did you play test at? Oh, so many conventions. Uh, Unpub was our favorite one. Uh, we frequent all of the Unpub rooms in conventions like Origins, uh, Gen Con, PAX Unplugged. Uh, but yeah, the, the Unpub, proper Unpub, was uh, just always a great experience. You know, you get a, just a ton of people coming by and just looking to learn a new game and give you their unapologetic feedback. <laughs> so for anyone who has not gone, do you want to explain what Unpub is? Sure. Uh, Unpub is a convention specifically for unpublished games uh, where you set up at a table. You have, I think it's a two or three hour block. It's actually been a while since we've done a proper convention. I was going to say, I feel like it tends to be two, three or four it's, hours, depending on I, where you're doing it. I, I, I couldn't remember what it is. It's so long since no, I've been it's at, different a table at every single one. You're good. <laughs> uh, but you're given a window where you can showcase your game and people come by. And if it looks like something they're interested, they sit down you can either you know teach them the game, or depending on what level of playtesting you're at, they could learn it from the rule book. There are obviously different ways to playtest, but I feel like most most of the time it's a very enthusiastic, very excited designer sitting at a table just wanting to show their game off to people. And uh, they sit down, they learn the game, and you kind of you, you look for the kinks, you look for the you know the moments where the game either starts to fall apart or you check to see what the exciting moments are, you know, and just how people are reacting to something. And it's a great, great experience. Honestly, if you have a chance to go to an unpub, highly recommend them. I know uh, 
Ben does protospiels, which I have not done a protospiel, but uh, I understand them to be very similar. They are. I was going to say I'm pro both sides, but also I'm on the advisory board for Unpub, so slightly favor the one. <laughs> You're tipping towards Unpub these days. <laughs> just, just a bit, you know. But also, you have a game that has a great table presence. Did you pull in a lot of people at these kind of conventions to play I test? I did. And just to ensure that, I actually made a giant version. Um, so instead of having these little half-inch scale blocks they're actually four inch scale and it's something that we would play on the floor uh, at one point i actually got unpumped to agree to let me use just floor space instead of table space you know just to really hook people in there's something about a spectacle that kind of catches the eye no that's awesome yeah as i recall zach we even talked well i think you had maybe posted a couple pictures or so of um actually ordering like cushions uh, that were life-sized <laughs> lots blocks. Is that that's true, right? That's right. Uh, we'd, we'd take the cushions and we'd cut them, and then we painted them to be the appropriate colors. Because again, in the game, the colors and the shapes actually do matter. Um, and then I actually used, I think it was Vista Print to print a banner that was just the board of the game. I, I scaled it so that it was this giant, you know, eight foot by eight foot version of the board uh for those who haven't played the actual game lots the real board is only about six inches yeah that is that is just too cool and uh, i can't wait to see it yeah in person one day but we've <laughs> talked about the what you know uh what the game is we talked about the how how to play the game and uh how playtesting was could you go into a little bit of uh the why like what about maybe just you wanted a game about uh, real space Tetris or um, anything about the inspiration for the game, if you could speak on those. The inspiration for Lots was actually um, my son. I, I, be, had be, I was going to become a father, and previously I had only made games about you know robots with rocket launchers and wrestlers hitting each other with barbed wire bats. And I said, you know what? Um, that's not the game I want to play with my son one day. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I, I leaned a little more family friendly and I, I came up with this little block building game. You know, as, as my child gets older, I want to just stack blocks and have fun with him, you know, not point a rocket launcher at him. So uh, I, a, as we were playing it, the obvious theme was to go with construction and it just became this very almost Bob the Builder like. Uh, type of presentation and yeah becoming a dad that's that's what made me go into the family friendly uh, lane do you think you've changed as even a board game player as well oh as not at all kind of- <laughs> <laughs> Any, anyone, who's, anyone who's ever played a game with me knows that i uh, i choose the red player uh, because it's either the blood of my enemies or the uh, face I make when I'm losing. It really depends how. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> how you're feeling? Very straightforward. I love it. Oh my goodness. Well, I, I will say from your Bob the Builder comment, when you look at the artwork, it does kind of have a feeling to that. So I, I can tell that it was inspired somewhat by that childish, right. fun look. But I have a random question. So as far as your first player rule, what made you decide it's whoever has the dirtiest shoes? Is that what it is? Uh, Well, I actually work in uh, 
I'm a laborer, and I know that the person who's working the hardest on the job is the one who always has the dirtiest shoes. The, you know, that's the person who is in the hole. So, give them the first player. I think that's so funny because it's yeah, definitely one of the more random ones that I've ever I, seen in a rule I, book. I wanted I wanted the first player rule to be ridiculously thematic, but not necessarily important. You know, I, m- most of the time people open up a game and the real first player rule is whose game is it and who's teaching it to us. Uh, Honestly, or who is the youngest player? <laughs> exactly. But just something a little thematic is always a nice nod to throw in there. Was there any impactful change um, that was made to the game as a result of playtesting? So it sounds like it went, it went through a few phases with family and friends and then on to conventions. Um, just wondering what changes uh, came about as a result of the playtesting. Well, I, I had actually been working on the game for, believe it or not, five years. And uh, not so much the, the game itself, but because of manufacturing it, I kept putting this game on the shelf and saying, you know, it's just not the right time. Um, I didn't see it being something feasible. I had shown it to other publishers. They enjoyed the game. And the same response would always come back. They just couldn't figure out how they were going to manufacture it. So over those five years, we did a lot of playtesting here and there. And the game changed and went back and really it came down to just deciding what what i wanted this game to be you know we had a a much heavier version of it where the scoring was a lot more complex Uh, there were uh different placement rules things like that that we put in the game to kind of make it feel a little crunchier but at the end of the day that that wasn't the game i wanted to make so we scaled a lot of that back Uh, we streamlined things I would say specifically something that came from playtesting was the catch-up mechanism. Uh, we had found that, you know, here we are in a family market. And um, when it comes to spatial reasoning, the adults have a bit of an edge. When it comes to dexterity, the adults have a bit of an edge. And I didn't want kids to feel like mom and dad were just blowing the doors off of them. You know, that's not a that's not a fun experience for the kid. And... Uh, that's when we kind of started working with this idea of the catch-up mechanism using the crew cards and these little purple cubes as something that the person who's trailing receives. So it's that little advantage where, you know, I spoke earlier about those aha moments. The person who isn't doing so hot, who maybe isn't scoring the most points, has these little secret abilities to help them kind of rubber band up to the front. It's almost like the, the purple shell in uh, Mario Kart. Mario Kart, yeah. Oh, it's, it's total Mario Kart. And you know why kids like that? Because it helps them beat the people who are just better at the game. <laughs> oh my God, yeah. I always hate being the first player because all you get are bananas or bananas. maybe a green shell, which who might could possibly, possibly work have that many you. bananas. No. Yeah, <laughs> it's bananas. <laughs> it's bananas. But yeah, and it really just it, is it the best thing to do for, you know, hardcore gamers no but that's not the market we were going for we're going Mm -hmm. for families and we want kids to play this game and say i want to play it again let's do it even when they lose i want to play it again and that's also why we tried to have it land somewhere in the um like the 20 minute range you know um very easy to get to the table explain play and hey did you have a good time let's do it again 
Definitely right. Uh, speaking as actually one of Zach's playtesters before, um, oh, I can definitely great. say <laughs> uh, that there were quite a few times, uh, yeah, at, at the playtesting uh, events, the proto-spiels and things, that people, like after they built it, uh, almost enjoyed as much uh, toppling the tower over, you know, once the game was done. So that just speaks to, again, the, the tactility of the game and just the enjoyment factor from basically, uh, you know, taking it out of the box and then setting it up uh, to play the game that is the actual game itself and then the teardown too. Um, what I, I mean, you kind of mentioned it too here, Zach, um, about possibly or like looking maybe for a home with a publisher and then eventually you decided to self-publish it. Would you be able to kind of uh, hone in on the the moment when you kind of decided or, or put your hammer down, so to speak, uh, about, you know, trying to launch it on your own? Absolutely. So uh, I had taken it to, as I said, several conventions. You know, you set up pitches with publishers and they show interest. And especially when you have something that's got table presence, you know, that's always a big selling factor. So they were oh, yeah. excited to get meetings. I was exciting to meet with them. And um, again, I, I, I would hand them the prototype, they'd take it, they'd play it, and it would always come back with the same answer. It has nothing to do with the game. It always came down to dollars and cents. Is this something that we're going to be able to make? Mm -hmm. um, now, in the family market, it's very rare that you would be able to sell a game, you know, over $35. Let's say 35 is about the the max a family is willing to pay. True. And for the longest time, I was just having a hard time finding a way to manufacture these blocks cost effective. Uh, originally, and as Ben mentioned, he, he did some of my blind testing. He took it to proto spiels and just let people learn it from the rules. So Ben, I appreciate it. I can't tell you how much that was worth. Uh, but you might remember the, the blocks used to be a lot bigger. And uh, it, we were looking into things like, uh, like doing molds for plastic. We were looking into yeah. CNC cutting for, the, uh, for wood. And it was just too expensive, uh, both to manufacture and to ship. And it wasn't until I finally just decided to scale it all down you know go go smaller with it we took took it down from a three quarter inch scale to a half inch scale which allowed us to laser cut the blocks almost uh, the same process that you would you know laser cut a meeple which was just much more cost effective uh do i wish the game was a little bigger absolutely but at the end of the day it landed at the right price point and I said to myself, I can make this game. You know, I, I, I'm a, I'm a one-man company, so I uh, don't have to think too much about the overhead, just the product mm -hmm. itself. And we were able to comfortably manufacture this game and ship it to our backers for twenty-nine dollars, which just felt like the right price point for this kind of game. That is honestly really good for that kind of game. Did you ever try pitching it to like a Haba where they're known for their wooden components? So Haba was one of the uh, companies that took it and also Blue Orange. Blue Orange okay. actually had it for a very long time. Um, and again, it just came down to price. Yeah, that's so hard. 
Uh, how did the plastic work out compared to the wood? Just terribly. 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 <laughs> was it the like, one-time mold charges or like oh, the tooling? It, it, it wasn't even an option. When you looked into it, you, you just said, oh, this is uh, not feasible. Almost, wow. almost kind of like how the publishers looked at it and just said, uh-uh, this isn't going to happen. Uh, but yeah, the, just the, the day I decided to scale the game back and just make it a little smaller was the day that I said, I think I can make this happen. And I, you know, I was, I was very lucky to do it. I highly recommend self-publishing. Um, oh. I'm a big fan of it. I love having the creative control and really being able to see a project from start to finish. There's just something very satisfying about it. Um, I have, you know, I've worked with another publisher on a different design of mine and they did an excellent job, but you always kind of look back and think, how would I have done it? Okay. I mean, would you mind expanding a little bit more on just how the crowdfunding campaign went from like advertising into it and then beyond and the comparison of working with the publisher versus that? I'd love to hear more about all of it. Well, sure. Lots was actually my uh, third Kickstarter. So I, I kind of had an idea of what I was doing. Nothing huge. Um, the first Kickstarter was for main event. And if I tell you everyone who's ever loved me backed that game and helped me bring it to life, uh, not a lot of you know outside help. Oh, yeah. So, uh, this is my first time, you know, very modest goal to, you know, make a game and just every possible mistake you could imagine uh, running a Kickstarter and manufacturing a game, but it was a great learning experience. Like I, uh, I think I had the box made by a company in New Jersey and I had the cards made in China and the, uh, the chips came from, uh, uh, what was it? Game crafter. And I put all of them together myself and I vacuum sealed the bags in my basement. All of these were huge mistakes. You Frankensteined. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Like legitimately, because I didn't know what I was doing, but luckily I saw it from start to finish. Uh, I learned some things along the way, uh, mostly what not to do. And <laughs> I took all of that new knowledge and I uh, used that for my, my next project, which was Deathbot Derby. And I learned more about manufacturing overseas and, and shipping and things like that. So again, great learning experience. Uh, I hired a fantastic artist who was actually a buddy of mine growing up. Uh, we reconnected to work on Deathbot Derby. And uh, he really helped bring that that gritty kind of robot look to the game. I didn't find out until afterwards that he was colorblind. So uh, interesting. Yeah, my my colorblind artist really helped bring that that rusty look to the game. <laughs> oh my goodness! <laughs> but again, uh, Deathbot was a very modest game, modest goals. I think we had maybe about 250 backers, but this was the first time that I actually got outside interest, you know, not just aunts and uncles saying, you know, good for you. Congratulations. And um, I started becoming a little more involved in the board game communities. Uh, That's when I started going to more conventions and things like that. And again, it was another great learning experience. So I took all that new knowledge about networking and 
manufacturing, shipping, and uh, over all those years, I was able to apply it to lots. When uh, when we launched that, I feel like we had a much better idea of what we were up against. Um, honestly, I only planned on needing about 300 backers to bring this thing to life. Uh, we launched it with a $5,000 goal, and all of our artists and um, re- you know reviewers, things like that, th- those were already paid for. So I kind of I saw that as money spent. You know what I mean? Uh, whether yeah. or not this campaign funds, that money has already been spent. So okay. it wasn't really something that I worked into the goal. The goal was strictly got to make this game, got to be able to send it to the people. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's why I was able to keep the the goal modest. You know, this isn't something I do for a living. I'm a I'm a handyman uh, as my day job, and uh, this was just a, a a hobby of mine. You know, I I, I describe myself as a hobby publisher because. Again, this doesn't put food on the table, and it doesn't keep the lights on. It's just something that I do. And if I was able to finally bring this game to light, it was just seeing something from start to finish. It's a very satisfying experience. And it turns out when you make your goals modest and approachable, other people believe in the product, and they hop on board. We actually did quite well with lots. Um, We exceeded... Uh, our goal, we almost uh, did about 200% of what we needed. And, you know, it, it allowed us to get it to the people nice and quick. Uh, we actually delivered the game, I think it was three months early, which is somewhat unheard of wow. for Kickstarter. For Kickstarter, honestly, unless you'd already bought all the games hoping it was going to fund, that, that doesn't <laughs> normally happen. No, I, I, I didn't buy them already, but the game was done. You know that the concept was there. We didn't we didn't bloat the campaign with uh, stretch goals and expansions and different components that we were adding into it. If we reached a little extra, we improved the quality of the cards. Um, I think at most we did an etched die instead of a printed die. So just nothing that was going to really set the project back. The product that we made, we knew exactly what we were going to do with it, and. Uh, the the backers responded well we we got it out and i think that was just a a big deal for some people to see that you know it wasn't this long drawn out waiting process what they backed is what they got and they got it on time that's amazing do you think in the future you're going to stick to just self publishing or are you going to continue to occasionally pitch your games i do believe that i'm going to stick to self publishing as the initial idea uh, i don't know that i'm opposed to a publisher showing interest in something, but uh, I definitely would like to maintain a little more uh, input. I'm wondering, so it sounds like there was so much work put into the Kickstarter for lots. I'm wondering how, and it seems like that's a big reason for for its success. Do you remember how long you spent preparing and what was most important in preparing for that launch, um, even thinking about how much time someone thinking about a Kickstarter, how much time ahead of time do they need to be planning for sure. in order to really be successful by the time you hit publish? Uh, planning should be 
uh, going on kind of from the conception of the idea to the moment it's in uh, someone's hands. But uh, the actual Kickstarter, I think I spent maybe about five or six months on it. And the only reason it was that long was because I wanted to make sure that I was giving the previewers uh, the right amount of time. Uh, we were only able to make so many copies of the, uh, the prototype. So I had them, you know, sending it around. When you're done with this copy, if you could please send it along to this one so that I can reimburse you for the shipping kind of a thing. It's just easier to do rather than make another prototype. So I wanted to make sure that everyone had at least, um, at least six weeks with the game. And I wanted to make sure that there was a three-month lead-up to that because, you know, content creators, need to, they need time to do their work as well. That's and so nice. uh, luckily, because I had been working on the game for so long, I had nothing but pictures of people playing the game, uh, enjoying it. Uh, the giant version, obviously, again, was a great spectacle. And you slap things like that on the Kickstarter page. Um, and, you know, I, I, I didn't really do a lot of computer-generated things. People saw this was a physical game. This is a real thing. These are real people who are playing it and enjoying it. And it kind of had... Uh, a little more, uh, I want to say authenticity. It didn't just look like someone's art concept. And, you know, I assured people that this is a game. It's ready to go. We're going to get it to you. And then, yeah, we were able to deliver. Speaking of delivering, Zach, we talked about all the different prototypes. Uh, you were answering, answering Denise's question earlier. Uh, you know, you kind of shrunk it down a little bit. You even 3D printed some. Uh, when you received the kind of final production copy, the retail version that's going to be sent out to backers, how did that feel for you after all of this time, all of these months and, well, uh, backed up years, five years kind of in the making? I, I had tears in my eyes. It was fantastic um, until I realized the spelling error on the cover oh, no. of the game. What? Oh, I know. I oh, see. No. I, I have no shame. I will tell you every mistake I ever made. Um, the game is called Lots, a competitive tower building game. And competitive was spelt wrong. Oh, my God. Oh, it was something I would do. <laughs> it was missing an I. And if I tell you, we went through the rule books and we made sure everything was right. We, I had oh, two yeah. different editors working on this. And you know what? I never shot across their way. The title of the game. <laughs> oh, no. Well, uh, good news. Good news. It was caught before we did any kind of real production. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. I was going to say, I didn't know. I, I always just, no, 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 no. I always just laugh about that. Here it is. I'm holding this game. Here's my baby. I made it. It's finally here. What is that? What is that on the cover? <laughs> and, oh, it just, it, it, it was a fun little thing that my wife and I joke about. We can't imagine if we had made you know, thousands of copies of this game and the name oh, of the game is wrong. See, and this is why you have to go through like the tooling sample. <laughs> yeah, sample you need everything. These, you need sample all the samples, everything. the JPEG proof, all of it. Never trust your own work. Get as many eyes on it as possible. Someone will, will find the mistake. I remember actually at a, um, at an unpub, my wife and I were playing the game Ladder 29. Great game. And she actually pointed out to them that the number three on their prototype was printed upside down. 
Interesting. Which I, it, it just it, it, you wouldn't notice it, but the smaller loop of the three was on the bottom, not the top. And it was just one of these things where like you've looked at your own prototype a thousand times, you've iterated it a billion other times, and you just don't see these things. You've got to get fresh eyes on it to see the cracks, you know? And uh, it's just I, I, I <laughs> yeah. would have lost my mind if I put the game out with the wrong title. Not oh all is lost. You might have been able to spin it into some kind of scavenger hunt in which there is no actual answer, but I hear, yeah, that would have been some, I intentionally some kind of spelt it wrong. It was yeah. a little Easter egg to all of you word That's nerds it. out there. Oh my goodness. I'm not going to lie. We just submitted final art for one of my games and there was a space missing and everybody did not see it until like the last second where we had already sent the artwork over to oh, China. God. And then we're like, wait a second. Bring we it back. Like, yeah, we, took like, <laughs> and we threw like a circle and then we put the real thing. We're like, please do this. <laughs> Look, we, we all make mistakes. Take your time with a project and just, again, get as many people to, to look at it and they may see something that you don't, you know, we, we don't all look at things through the same lenses. So true. So you keep saying it was about five years. Can you give us an exact time and how long it took for that initial concept to pop into your head all the way to giving those backers that game three months early? Only because I went back to see when I purchased those cubes on Amazon. It was July 14th of 2014. Oh my God. You have like the exact date. That is well, that, fantastic. That was the exact date that I placed an order on Amazon. I don't know if that was the first time I, I like put pen to paper on the idea, but as like two days later, thank you, prime shipping. I had blocks at my door and I started gluing them together. I mean, it was at least the prototype birthday. <laughs> that's, there you go. that's solid. Yeah. But I, I know that because, uh, you know, one of the, things that I put up on the Royal End Games Facebook group was, you know, from start to finish, I had the original prototype picture in 2014, and then that sample copy with the misspelt name in <laughs> 2019. So, Oh, yeah. That's in a trophy case somewhere in the house. Oh, yeah. It's got to be. Oh, yeah. I'm saving that one forever. <laughs> Again, learn from your mistakes. Don't hide from them. And so as a designer, were you working on multiple other projects during that time or was it just lots for the five years? I think I always have um, different ideas, different concepts that I, I mess around with. I mean, I'm part of a, a playtesting group and it gets stale to bring the same game over and over, you know, have the same people look at it time to time again. Um, I think lots is the only one I was seriously working on. I think uh, every time I do a game, I focus on that one. And then I sprinkle in some other ideas here and there just to just to keep the brain fresh, you know? For sure. I, I feel like I tend to annoy people and they're like, oh, you brought another new idea. And I was like, I need to see if it works. <laughs> this, this is just a little different. Just a little different. Exactly. <laughs> So looking back over your journey with lots, I'm curious about what was your most favorite sort of experience or moment, and what was your most challenging moment? Well, most favorite moment was actually at a convention. I had uh, two guys walking past the table, and I said, hey, you know, 
you guys want to play a game? And I showed them lots and they kind of looked at it. They're like, oh, you know, we're not really into kids games. And it definitely does have a kids game look. It's, you know, it's a family game. Uh, but I, I convinced them, hey, you know, 15 minutes. I'll show you the game. Well, if I tell you that they sat at that table for an hour playing it over and over again. Uh, they, wow. you know, played it where they're stacking the blocks perfectly. And then the next game they want to see, okay, I want to precariously balance blocks and see if we can break this game. And they were just having so much fun playing this family game. And, you know, looks can be deceiving, you know, um, give, give something a chance. That was, that was a, that was a nice moment where I realized that, you know, not, not every game has to appeal to all gamers, but just make the experience the best possible version it can be. And, you know, people will enjoy it. And so on the opposite end? The opposite end. Most challenging. I might actually need a moment for this. I would say most challenging was the manufacturing. Uh, you know, or uh, probably the rejection. Uh, constantly hearing back the same thing that this game just isn't feasible. You know, you work on something for a while and just to keep hearing, we can't make this. We don't see how this is a viable product. It, it, it can be disheartening. And it wasn't until I decided to just, you know, finally bite the bullet and do it myself that I got past that. You know, I realized this is something I can do. I can see it to the end. And we actually managed licensing lots to other countries who are going to be putting out versions uh, in, in the coming years. And it's just nice to see this, you know, finally out in the world. You know, I proved it is feasible. There is a market for it. People do enjoy it. And it was just nice to get it there. Could you further expand on how you were able to get other companies to start producing it in other countries? Like, did you go up to someone? Did they contact you after seeing your Kickstarter? I, I'd be curious to know how all that worked. Sure. Um, I guess I just fell into a lucky situation with uh, a company called Meeples on board. They worked as a uh, kind of an in-between. You know, they hire clients and they take those games and they show it to other publishers worldwide and they say hey you know i've got this in our catalog this is something you would be interested in making a version of and uh just recently we uh had the uh the game printed in korea so it's very cool to see the game coming out in different languages we're working on something with uh, hopefully poland we have a u.s company who's going to be taking over in 2022 so we're very excited about that. And, it, you know, it was just uh, very fortuitous that they they reached out to me and said, we think we can get other people interested in this product. That's so cool. Yeah, to kind of tie all that together, Zach, you had the lows and you had the very high highs, uh, especially as of late. Is there a, like a particular lesson that you might have given yourself uh or past you, you know, when, when you were feeling a little down uh, about lots or, or maybe just even at the beginning of the journey, like what's, what's one thing that you would tell yourself if you could, uh, about this whole life. Process. Yeah. Uh, -huh. uh, I would say B 
be honest with yourself about what your goal is. Is this game something that you're looking to just a lot of designers say, oh, I just want to get my game out into the world. Well, if that's the case, do it. Self-publish it. There's endless resources to do that. Manufacturers, different crowdfundings. Uh, I mean, there's even the Game Crafters crowd sales if you, if you really just want to get your thing out into the world. But if what you really want is to make 10 million copies sold worldwide, yeah, you go with a publisher that can do that. <laughs> Um, so just be true to yourself. Really know what you want to get out of this. It's so true. Not everybody's meant to be a publisher. I know when I tried, uh, I decided that's not for me. Oh, I again, I still don't consider myself an air quotes uh, publisher. This is something I do for fun. I manage to make the thing I set out to make. You know, I, do I think I will ever sign someone else's design? Uh, debatable. I've gone back and forth on that. You know, this isn't something I do that makes a lot of money. So I would almost feel weird taking on someone else's creative project and uh, just not being able to really show them the, the fruits of their labor. No, and that's good to know that about yourself. How did you come up with your company's name, if you don't mind me asking? Oh, uh, never name your company based off an inside joke that no one else knows. I used to be in a ska band in high school, and our name was Royal Nonesuch. That's it. Royal N Games. Oh there's my not a lot to it. <laughs> um, there's probably six people in the world who actually get that, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's stuck. <laughs> It's okay. I mean, I have DMR Creative Group. It's literally my initials. Initials, yep. I, yeah, and I tried to find a web address for like design or something, and the only thing that was available was Creative Group. So I was like, okay, but I used it initially for graphic design and then switched it over to game design. I, right. Did you ever? Uh, do you remember seeing? It was this, uh, I guess, joke Facebook post going around for a while to uh, randomly generate your company's name. It was Animal Action Games. You just pick any animal. Any action, and then add the word games. I did not, but I will say when I was like, deciding Lama on an actual game, games, you know. Oh jeez. <laughs> <laughs> no, if I ever went down the publisher route, I have a a game name that I would have used, but I cheaped out and instead. I just changed my logo to fit the game name I had inside my head. Okay. But it was Crystal Canyon games I wanted to do, and so if you look at my DMR logo, it's got like these bluish-looking canyons inside of it so oh, no. kind of incorporated it you'll still make, make it happen danielle oh thank you that's I right really yeah don't it lives. Do that. <laughs> <laughs> no. it lives on in my heart and in my social media <laughs> uh zach i'm wondering do you have any uh, upcoming projects you can share with us uh, i do actually um we were very pleased with the reaction that we got from lots that during the lockdowns my wife and i actually started making a roll and write version of the game. Uh, uh, again, if I'm being perfectly honest, it was a reskin of a design I was trying to make for another company at the time. Uh, I was trying to do a roll and write version of Sagrada. I'm sure you all know Sagrada. Oh yeah, huge yeah. fan. Love the app. At, at, we were playing Sagrada, and I thought to myself, I was like, this this is basically a roll-and-write game with just beautiful components. So we 
just for fun, we're playing around with the idea of how how would you make Sagrada properly into a roll and write. And uh, after a while, I kind of realized I can start changing you know certain parts of this where it's it's my intellectual property, not someone else's. You know that I'm just doing for fun. Uh, where instead of the the dice, we're bringing in the polyomino shapes from lots, and you know we're introducing the crew and things like that. So uh, we took that idea. It was just a little design challenge I gave myself to make the Sagrada roll and write, and it actually started growing into the lots roll and write, and we absolutely love it. Uh, we had to change the way we did all of our playtesting, obviously, because everything's been done remotely. But uh, it, it was just as simple as sending a file to someone, having them print it out, and rolling some dice over a Zoom meeting. I love that that's the route you went versus using like Tabletop Simulator or something. Well, Ben knows how great I am at Tabletop Simulator. <laughs> so great. So, so great, great. So great. I once dropped my player meeple into an infinite randomizing bag. I then immediately quit the game. Oh no. <laughs> Did you flip the digital table as well? No, I didn't. I was just like, yeah, guys, this isn't for me. Uh, I've already lost my player pawn into the abyss. I think, uh, I think I'm out. Uh, you low-key intentionally did that. Well, no, I didn't low-key do it. I, <laughs> but uh, luckily, Ben has been very nice and patient with me and uh, was able to show me how to use tabletop simulator and, you know, patience, which was not something I had an abundance of at the time. I'm really excited about this project. I believe that there are not enough roll and rights in the world. Well, there's a billion roll and rights. There uh, are <laughs> still not enough. So I'm really excited about this. But I mean, if, if each roll and write brings something a little, a little different, you know, and it just scratches a, a, a different itch. Uh, then it's then it's worth doing. They're really cost-effective games to make. I think that's why there's so yeah. many of them. You know, a couple of dice, pen and paper, and there you go. You got a game. Uh, I was actually very excited because the lots roll and write uses uh, colored pencils, so it's not just uh, you know the one black pencil. You're you're when by the time you're done, you've got this very colorful tower that you had to thoughtfully put together to uh, optimize colors and finishing floors. There's actually four different ways to score in the game. So uh, we wanted it to, you know, uh, be a, a, a step up above uh, uh, lots in its complexity, the original lots, because we want the game IP to kind of grow with the families that it was made for. That's so cool. So is everyone going to get their own set of colored pencils or are you going to like make people share? Oh yeah. You got to share. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, yeah, everyone gets their, their own, you know, black pencils so that they can mark down and score their sheet. But yeah, you just share a colored pencils amongst you. It's uh, actually a very mean dice drafting game because the hate draft is strong in that game. Oh, jeez. <laughs> so we're circling right back to that munchkin. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. You got to – I love player interaction. Um, I recognize that there are a lot of very good games out there that are just not for me. Um, but multiplayer solitaire is definitely something that just doesn't ever really grab my attention. 
you know, I, I play a game and if I feel like I'm not playing it with the people at the table, their decisions aren't affecting my decisions at all. It just doesn't excite me as much. Yeah, that makes sense. But again, that's that's just a, a personal preference. There are people that love that and all the better to them. This game might not be for you. <laughs> and that is A-OK. Oh, yep. man. More, more than that, Zach. This has been... Such an awesome quality time with you. Uh, thank you Thanks. again, yeah, for for setting aside uh, this hour or so to just talk with us and geek out about lots. Listeners, uh, thank you for joining us on this episode of Game Design Unboxed: Inspiration to Publication, Episode Thirteen. Lots, and again, a, a big thank you to you, Zach, uh, for joining us. For anyone looking to find you or reach out uh, through social media or some other contact, uh, how and where can you be reached? Uh, I can be reached on Twitter at Royal End Games. Uh, more likely, I can be reached on Facebook, Zach Connolly. Uh, feel free to drop a line, talk games with me. There's nothing I love more. Just don't digitally play a game with you. Yeah, no, don't don't invite me to. Uh, <laughs> no, I've gotten better. I promise. I promise. I I I have played quite a few games on Tabletop Simulator. It just takes you know two hours more than it should. And with that, we'll just quickly close out with the hosts. I'm Ben. You can find me on Facebook um, as Ben Moy and your friend Ben Moy designs board games. Yeah, you can find me, Denise, on Twitter at year23. And I'm Danielle Reynolds. You can find me on Facebook at DMR Creative Group, on Twitter at Creative DMR, and then Instagram as Token Gamer. And that's G A Y M E R. Thanks, everyone, for lots of fun. Uh, very good. Thank you. <laughs> oh, my God. This has been another episode of Game Design Unboxed, inspiration to publication. If you'd like to hear more great gaming podcasts, check out nodirectionpodcast.com. Join us next time.